0: This is the ISSP Podcast, the International Society for Sports Psychiatry, or ISSP, aims to carry the science and practice of psychiatry to the athletic community. My co hosts and I are all medical trainees between medical students and resident physicians who plan to specialize in psychiatry. And we host conversations around the intersection between mental health and sports. Welcome. Hello and welcome. This is the ISSP Podcast, where we investigate the intersection between mental health and sports. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, so I'm your host today, Roy Collins. I'm a psychiatry resident here at Stanford. And for this special episode, we're going to do just a one-on-one conversation with an expert in a field that we feel like is going to be upcoming in, in athletics, and especially with both performance um, and sports mental health in, the, in that intersection. Um, and that topic is going to be how psychedelics can possibly play a role in that intersection. And so uh, today we brought an expert in mental health and psychedelics, and that expert happens to be my co-resident, uh, Dr. Johnny Glick. Johnny, welcome to
1: the podcast. Thanks, Roy. Yeah, I have uh, expert, expert. I don't know about that, that term. Uh, I'll share everything I know, what I do know, but uh, I don't know if I can endorse myself as an expert, but, uh, but glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, definitely one of the more experts that I know, certainly. <laughs> so we appreciate you uh, for, for having your time with us. Um, so, so Dr. Glick, Johnny, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your journey into medicine and, and how you at least became interested in this field?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wish it were a, a, a clean story. Uh, it probably isn't. I, I, what I piece together is a, a long-standing interest in basically how e- emotional connection can can uh, lead to healing, psychological healing, and then also physical healing through this complex web of the brain and the immune system and the nervous system in the body. Um, Mm. um, And this led me to medicine and then to psychiatry Mm -hmm. along the way, had a growing interest in, in psychedelic assisted therapy, Mm. Uh, really curious about how um, uh, with psychedelics on board, people may have experiences of deeper connection and deeper insight into who they are and what's going on. And then how this uh, could lead, in some cases, to less suffering. So this mm-hmm. personal interest of mine paralleled this growing uh, resurgence of uh, clinical studies with psychedelics in the mm-hmm. last decades, mm-hmm. and that converged on uh, landing at Stanford uh, in mm-hmm. the last three years and trying to bring awareness to psychedelic-assisted therapy and research uh, as a psychiatry resident. Mhm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about psychedelic assisted therapy, um, you know, I think th- people think about right psych medications, SSRIs, antidepressants. They think about talk therapy, right? We think about the old Freudian, like, laying on the bed and, and having someone in a tweed jacket kind of looking over them. Where does psychedelic assisted therapy kind of come into the mix there?
1: Yeah, great question. I think to, we can start maybe really zoomed out, sure. we can say that you know to. Psychedelics encompass this enormous range of different plants, different molecules, um, mm. and different kinds of experience and different um, uh, worldviews of use and frameworks of use. So I should say, mm-hmm. yeah, psychedelics as plant medicines have been used for thousands of years, mm-hmm. completely outside of medical context. It could, it could mm. be sometimes, mostly ceremonial or, or ritual or sacred use, um, and that's really not what what we're talking about when we say psychedelic assisted therapy, which is a more Mm -hmm. modern Western concept. Mm -hmm. If you just take a cross section of use today, it also does, you know, medical use is a very small piece of that. There's also, Mm -hmm. um, sacramental use so-called underground therapy. Mm
2: -hmm. There's
1: also recreational use, which is the great Mm -hmm. majority. And that is people taking psychedelics in a lot of different contexts without a medical provider, without a therapist or guide Mm -hmm. of any kind. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think we should just be specific when we talk about uh, which frame or domain we're we're, we're talking about because they're they're very different. They come with different implications, right. different risks, different benefits, etc.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. When and and I think we should also define what a psychedelic could be. Even you know we talked about different. Uh, plants and compounds have been used for thousands of years, um, I'll just say something that come to mind and, and you let me know kind of where it fits in the frame. So I think about LSD as a psychedelic. I think about MDMA as a psychedelic. Psilocybin is probably one of the more widely accepted ones. And I know the one that we want to focus on today. Um, what, what are some other examples of, of psychedelics or where that all kind of fit in your mind?
1: Totally. Yeah. Uh, f- agree on those. Those are the the main ones, the most researched three, I'd say. MDMA Mm -hmm. psilocybin and LSD Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think broadly they can be split between so-called classic psychedelics Mm. mostly affect the serotonin 2a receptor and Mm -hmm. that's psilocybin LSD and then Mm -hmm. DMT or dimethyltryptamine Mm. Uh, and then you have ones that don't really fit that so-called tryptamine or classic psychedelic category Mm -hmm. and that's where MDMA falls in Mm. so uh, MDMA is sometimes called an intactogen or empathogen it mm-hmm. works on the serotonin system in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and that split um, maybe is the highest level split. Mm-hmm. You'll also hear, you know, ayahuasca talked about, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. a brew of um, different plants. It um, can involve many different kinds of plants, but um, one containing DMT or dimethyltryptamine, and then one containing a, uh, an MAOI, um, another plant that inhibits the breakdown of the DMT Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say those are the most commonly talked about and studied and used ones Mm -hmm. there's also ketamine but that's kind of its own can of worms that doesn't I think relate as much to sports medicine or uh our purposes today but happy sure yeah
0: yeah I'm glad you brought up ketamine um where where do you sort of, does that fit in the psychedelic space? Because um, it, it de- definitely, we use it a lot, not a lot, but we use it somewhat as a, a, a depression an adjunct treatment um, to help a treatment resistant depression. So do you consider
1: ketamine a psychedelic? It's a great question. The answer is, it depends on who you ask. Uh-huh. I, I do. I think ketamine can produce psychedelic uh, experiences when used in in uh, a particular way. Hmm. And most of the research in psychiatry in the last two decades has not been, uh, seeing ketamine as a psychedelic mm. more a, a biochemical sort of under the hood, uh, mm. medication, mostly for depression. Um, mm-hmm. the distinctions involve the route of administration. So in the mm-hmm. biomedical model it's intravenous it's infused over 40 minutes at a fixed dose mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. and the psychological or subjective effects are not, um, are not taken seriously as a component of the therapy. Mm-hmm. They're almost seen as, uh, they're seen as dissociative, they're labeled dissociative and seen as side effects to be minimized.
2: Mm-hmm. There's
1: there's some validity to that. There's some reason that we maybe should be careful to minimize unpleasant effects.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The psychedelic therapy model and the use of ketamine in that context um, sees the subjective phenomenological in the moment experience of being on ketamine as integral to the healing process. Hmm. Uh, And that involves preparation beforehand, uh, sitting with during integration afterward, Mm -hmm. and usually sublingual or intramuscular.
0: Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Well, thank you for that that beautiful breakdown. Um, I want to get to some of the science that we talked about as far as how some of these psychedelics can better someone's depression, better someone's mood. We talked about how they can help with serotonin. We know the serotonin is an integral neurotransmitter that is involved in mood, so sort of, generally speaking. Um, you even talked about one of them having an kind of MAOI effect, which covers a lot of different neurotransmitters, but serotonin kind of being one of them. Um, i wonder if you can give us more context into what the science actually is behind psychedelics being helpful for serotonin
1: regulation. Yeah. Totally this is this is an ongoing question. You'll see if you look in the last few years papers published in nature and, and science neuroscientists trying to get at this question of uh, mechanistically how are psychedelic, psychedelics helpful. Mm-hmm. I guess a step back a step, you know the, the first signal um, uh, that psychedelic therapy um, could be helpful in, in mental illness dates back to you know the early 50s.
2: So mm-hmm. Before they were
1: made illegal, there was about two decades of research um, a- across psychiatric hospitals in this actually mm-hmm. internationally showing that there's something like uh, you know a uh, thousand different studies with 40,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a signal that it could be helpful in things like terminal I- anxiety associated with a terminal illness, mm. uh, alcohol use disorder, etc. But they mm-hmm. were not those trials, it was like the wild west in psychiatry back then, it was a very experimental era. It's mm-hmm. not double blinded, controlled in the same rigorous way that we try to do so today. Anyway, mm-hmm. so got this two decades of kind of uh, uncontrolled research that showed a signal for efficacy mm-hmm. that's been tucked away and put on the rug in this dark era, or the dark ages of psychedelic research. Right. It up again in 2000. Well, maybe around 2000, the first big paper is 2006 coming out of Hopkins. And the last two decades, and I will get to the mechanism, I promise but the last two decades have been using psilocybin mostly uh-huh. in a very specific model of psychedelic therapy, which we can talk mm-hmm. about for mm-hmm. the treatment of so far, it's been depression, mm-hmm. treatment resistant depression, mm-hmm. alcohol use disorder, really small study, smoking mm-hmm. cessation, really small study, mm-hmm. pilot study, mm-hmm. um, anxiety and depression associated again with a terminal illness, mm-hmm. um, cancer, um, MDMA for social anxiety, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, in autistic adults mm-hmm. MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder,
2: um, mm-hmm.
1: and, and maybe even a few others that are, and, and actually the, well, yeah. And a few other smaller studies. So why does it appear to be effective?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I should say that in every study that I just mentioned, um, they've been relatively small
2: mm-hmm. and
1: they've shown really strong effect sizes. Um, mm-hmm. the results have been significant They've been sustained over weeks and months, in many cases, up to a few years when they follow up, um, and these effects appear to happen across these diagnoses I just mentioned, suggesting that there's some common underlying uh, process that psychedelics may be acting on mm. in the brain or in the psyche that mm-hmm. um, that that uh, reduces suffering or I- in some way. So that begs the question: What's going on in the brain? How are psychedelics working? Right. And this is just this, uh, really rich field of neuroscience that people are digging into mm-hmm. just like a few weeks ago, there was a paper, paper published in, in nature, um, mm-hmm. m- uh, looking at, uh, fMRI data with psilocybin in one of the depression trials and the big picture finding, uh, and this does relate to serotonin in a way we can talk about, but the big picture yeah. finding is that it, it, um, um, reduces, uh, high level networks in the brain, the default mode network gets a lot of attention. That's one of them, the executive network, which is about um, uh, executive control or task switching. And then Mm -hmm. then I think also the the salience network, Mm -hmm. um, which is about switching from external to internal. What is salient in your experience? Mm -hmm. Basically it helps the brain talk to each other. Parts of the brain talk to each other in ways they are not typically doing Mm -hmm. and in a way loosens the rigidity of, uh, uh, entrenched networks, so mm. the rigidity of um, these high-level networks, mm-hmm. but these are all based on small neuroimaging data. It's speculation. Yeah, I'll, I'll pause there. That was, a, was kind of a lot of.
0: Uh, no, no, I, I appreciate that. I, I think the the breaking down of entrenched networks is something I want to continue to explore. You know, in, in some of my readings about how specifically psilocybin could be helpful, I've heard that it can kind of melt your ego or dissolve. Uh, again, maybe some of the um, personal identity uh, issues or things that are, again, there seems to be some synergy between, again, kind of what's entrenched and how one identifies himself. I wonder if you can maybe speak more to that.
1: Great point, yeah. So if you look at, um, there's literature where they ask people, uh, what did you experience when you were on psilocybin in the trials? And people talk about subjectively report when you observe what's happening in your own psyche, people will sometimes report uh, uh, seeing the world in a new way, mm-hmm. feeling like the typical boundaries of their ego are dissolved or, or at least weakened, mm-hmm. um, allowing new information to come in, mm-hmm. having perceptions that they wouldn't ordinarily have. Um, so that has led to this, this uh, labeling of this idea of ego dissolution. You know, or mm-hmm. you know about melting the ego. We mm-hmm. so do like ten hours on. You know, what does the what does that even mean? What is the ego? Right. You know.
0: Well, how, how do we how do we think that affects someone's someone's mood, someone's anxiety?
1: Right. Like, why do
0: we think that dissolving someone's ego is going to improve their mental health?
1: Yeah, perfect question. So, let let's just say that the ego is the set of psychological strategies you use to organize information in the world. Uh huh. Uh huh. There's chaos of information out there. And it's processed through certain channels uh, that are maybe habits of thinking, ways of interpreting the world and yourself. Uh, We know that a part of uh, conditions like depression and anxiety involve a a way of uh, a rigid uh, pattern of thinking in some cases. Sometimes a a negative cognitive bias Mm -hmm. and certain rigidified uh, ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, the model of the world is a little bit constrained. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea, the proposal uh, is that psychedelics in some way are loosening this, uh, these, these ruts of thinking. This relates to this idea of brain networks talking to each other that normally, that normally don't. So it, this is a massive simplification. So just to- total caveat here. But it's yeah, been suggested it's been suggested that the so-called default mode network, Mm-hmm. which is a network in the brain that's active when you're at rest. Uh, it's involved in self-referential thinking when you're daydreaming and ruminating a little bit, thinking about yourself, mm-hmm. but this is uh, there's more activity in this network mm-hmm. when you're depressed and mm-hmm. in other conditions. Mm-hmm. And the psychedelics have been shown to reduce activity in this network. So mm-hmm. this, this neurologic circuit uh, phenomena may map mm-hmm. onto the subjective experience of ego dissolution or loosening these typically rigid ways that you're thinking about the world or interpreting events, which in a condition like depression or anxiety could, um, could be helpful.
0: You know, it's really interesting because when we think about therapy, psychotherapy, right? Um, the whole kind of science behind psychotherapy is you have these neural neural connections and we want to make new ones, right? These, these connections are leading to bad outcomes. They're putting you in a position that's leading to therapy in the first place. And so we want to open your mind to a different reality, right? Different uh, neuronal connections that will kind of lead to better outcomes. And so when we think about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, it sounds like what we're doing is sort of uh, going about the same pathway from two different dimensions, I guess. Is that,
1: is that fair to say? That's a great point. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of the the focus on the, of the research has been really it's therapy, it's psychedelic-assisted mm-hmm. therapy. Now mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of people who are studying psychedelics, want to study it on its own, and that's that's a different mm-hmm. ballgame.
2: Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm.
1: exactly to your point, we know at mm-hmm. least on the sort of uh, cellular level, psychedelics, mm-hmm. such as LSD and psilocybin, increase this, pro- enhance this process of neuroplasticity,
2: mm-hmm. forming
1: new connections between neurons, forming new spines on the neurons.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so in therapy, yeah, I think the part of it, I think, involves forming new connections, forming new right. ways of thinking. And it can be thought that uh, sort of the suggestion, I think, is that psychedelics enhance this process, enhance the plasticity of uh, of what therapy may al- already be attempting to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 You know, I, I know that the history of psychedelic research um, is just full of, of controversy, full of politics, there are these kind of dark ages, right? Um, you know, we don't, that is probably its own podcast episode, if not it's kind of series of episodes, right? But I think what we can probably distill a lot of that down to is the fear of people using it recreationally, kind of getting high, as they say. Um, so what would you sort of, how, how, how would you segregate someone um, who's taking Psychedelics in a way that's unmonitored and, and doing it recreationally, doing it for the intoxicated effects, versus kind of what we're talking about, which is more, again, regulated, more um, strategic.
1: Yeah, um, gr- great question, and I, f- I feel like this is where I, th- I feel like we just have to, we all have to kind of be careful about uh, mm-hmm. imposing our judgments about drug use because mm-hmm. um, people use drugs for all different reasons, and mm-hmm. you know, I think it's it's just best for us to have. Um, curiosity about those ways and and kind of a non-judgmental stance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, so I don't I don't I guess I you know we could think about um, I, I think about it in terms of a harm reduction perspective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are ways to use a psychedelic, mm-hmm. knowing what we know about them that they you know increase vulnerability to intense sensations that mm-hmm. you know, they may lower these psychological defenses. So mm-hmm. knowing what we know, there are ways to use psychedelics, even recreationally, um, that may be more safe or more likely to produce a useful or meaningful um, or positive experience. I guess um, psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin in particular, are less mm-hmm. often uh, used, I, get, I guess, um, to get high in the sense that, say, maybe alcohol or cannabis, I'm gonna, I am feel like I'm stepping on tricky grounds here because everybody's relationship to drugs is different and it's not really, yeah. not for anyone to, to judge it, but right. they're less often used to get high because sure. of the intensity of the experience. So if, mm-hmm. you know, if you want it to feel good, mm-hmm. there's way easier ways to do that than mm-hmm. to take mm-hmm. LSD. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think epidemiologically, LSD use is a little bit less, say, how do I say, um, pleasure seeking or kind of- I like, see you know, hed- hedonic than, than, uh, than other drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, I should say too, again, the, the medical, what we're talking about and what I talk about mostly at Stanford is this like psychedelic therapy model mm-hmm. people on their own have been and can use psychedelics in their own safe, um, um, like personal, aligned with their personal goals uh, mm-hmm. ways that, that don't involve the medical community whatsoever it's just it's just a different kind of thing it's not really my place to comment on that
0: i hear that i hear that um let's move it back to some of the clinical trials that have been um kind of put out there and produced there was one recently that came out that has been under some controversy i wanted to see what your opinion on was that that showed that psilocybin could be as helpful as antidepressants for depression um what are your thoughts on that survey
1: yeah, yeah, this is great. Uh, you'll have to kind of like shut me up because there's there's so much to talk about with this study. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, basically, I think it was, uh, I want to say about 30 participants, between, I think between 30 and 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, it was, I should say this, it was, they made excellent effort to control this and mm-hmm. design the study mm-hmm. such that we could we could uh, trust the results. Mm-hmm. it turns out it's, it's not so, it's very complex, but basically it was about 30 something people They were split Mm -hmm. into two groups. Um, One of them uh, and the the study lasted six weeks. One of the groups got psilocybin twice in the course Mm -hmm. of that six weeks and took a a daily pill that was Mm -hmm. evil. And that was a placebo. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: The other group got Lexapro or escitalopram, which is a very, Mm -hmm. you know, one of our bread and butter SSRI antidepressant medications. Mm -hmm. And they took a very, very low placebo dose of psilocybin twice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Put them side by side, and then you measure depression after those six weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the tricky part. The main outcome measure that they defined before the start of the study was the QUIDS, the quick inventory of depressive symptoms, I think. Yep. On that measure, there was actually no significant difference between Lexapro and psilocybin or Mm -hmm. depression. Mm-hmm. They also measured a bunch of secondary outcomes, including different ways of measuring depression, different mm-hmm. scales by measuring depression, mm-hmm. and on, on most, if not all, of those secondary measures, psilocybin outperformed
2: mm-hmm. as mm-hmm.
1: but, um, for the main primary outcome, there was no significant difference. Now, you might say that's a that's in some ways a failure, um, mm-hmm. but you might say also, uh, at least as far as six weeks. Mm -hmm. There's no significant difference, which in some ways is kind of big news because Mm -hmm. they only took psilocybin twice versus they Mm -hmm. uh, Lexapro every day for six weeks. Mm -hmm. The biggest caveat to this is like, we know SSRIs take time to work. So Mm -hmm. I would be really curious to see the outcomes at 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. I would want to see a person who's taking Lexapro, you know, at the eight, 10 week mark when they've been longer.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Well, I think that's yeah, it's very interesting. And I agree, uh, probably
1: longer time
0: um, for the Lexpro to, to really kick in, uh, to kind of understand that, but certainly different options. So I think that kind of leads me naturally into my next question, which is, who, who would you recommend? Let, let, let's let's start with psilocybin, which I think is of, of the three MDMA, LSD, psilocybin. Psilocybin has kind of been like the leading horse right now, as far as kind of mainstream availability and, and even usage right now. Um, so if, if I am somebody and I struggle with uh, insert mental health diagnoses, when would you recommend that I consider psilocybin?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, I should also say, too, I guess, to I, 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 I bet many people listening already know this. So mm. just but, uh, in case anybody doesn't, psilocybin is the name uh, of the tryptamine molecule mm-hmm. um, that is found in many different species. Of uh, of mushrooms, psilocybe mm-hmm. mushrooms. One of which is psilocybe cubensis. Mm-hmm. Um, when most people talk about, so in all the clinical trials, they're using the that single psychoactive molecule they've extracted or synthesized in a capsule. When mm-hmm. people talk about using shrooms or mushrooms or psilocybin, in almost all cases, they're talking about actually eating the mushroom,
2: mm-hmm. the
1: dried the dried mushroom, mm-hmm. and. You know it's, it's kind of up for debate whether there are significant experiential differences between the mushroom and the psilocybin, but uh, they're pretty close, I think. In um, most people, would say they're fairly close in terms of mm-hmm. subjective effects. Mm-hmm. So, to your question, um, which I will answer carefully, tread carefully, yeah. yes. as you know, this is like totally not medical advice. Uh-huh. I think, um, you know, if if a person is struggling with a, a mental mental illness Mm -hmm. or any kind of condition that you've heard there's research using psychedelics about, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I would, my, my best recommendation is what I would tell my mom or my sister or anybody Mm -hmm. is to try the things that we have the best safety data about first.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. It's a straight up a safety question. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, So I would recommend therapy. I would recommend trying medicines that we know work in some cases not Mm -hmm. as the end-all, be-all, but as something that we know does help some portion Mm -hmm. of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If after many of those things haven't worked and you're really feeling depressed, you know, depression comes with its own risks. And if it's not being treated, that's itself is a risky state. Right. The, the, The truth of the matter is sitting right here, whatever, April, 2022 on this podcast, I totally can't and won't say that you know, psilocybin or any these should be taken as treatments for depression because mm-hmm. it's just not where we are
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the science.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I can talk about you know use from a, a harm reduction perspective.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I can talk about you know the data that we do have showing efficacy. I can talk all about how they did it and how they chose the participants and why we think it might work. But I guess I can't can't yet stand here and say. uh give advice.
0: Well, one, one quick clarification. So I was purposely vague into in what diagnoses, but all the data has been specifically for major depressive disorders. So um, what I would say, if, if you have psychosis, probably not a good idea if you have a uh, bipolar disorder, we have no e- evidence that would be helpful for bipolar disorder. So we, we do know that for major depressive disorder, MDD, depression, um, that is where we have the most data and, and that's kind of where I would start. So, you know, oftentimes anxiety is concurrent with with, with mood. Um, so there's nothing to say, it's not contraindications we might say, um, but I would start there, meaning there needs to be some depressive dis- disorder diagnosis first, right? You would agree with that? <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I should say too, you make a great point. So every piece of data that we have in the last two decades Mm -hmm. has come from a population that's heavily screened. Mm -hmm. All of the participants in the trials are only in those trials because Mm -hmm. they have no history, no personal or family history of any psychotic disorder. Mm -hmm. That means Mm -hmm. No psychosis, no schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. uh, no bipolar disorder. All of those Mm -hmm. have been excluded from the study. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is because there is this, um, I don't know how to exactly qualify it. There is this presumed or possibly real risk of um, exacerbating or triggering
2: mm-hmm. psychotic
1: episode from the mm-hmm. use of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. The data about this is really tricky to sort through because it's coming from things like emergency room visits mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. use out there in the wild mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of confounding factors. So we can't yet say that it does or it doesn't exacerbate um, psychotic disorders, but mm-hmm. there is a a there is a, at least a small risk of this. So just, we can say full stop, if there's anybody out there with a psychotic disorder, mm-hmm. um, that it's probably unwise at this moment to to be using psychedelics.
0: Any other major uh, adverse effects, any other side effects you think people should be cognizant of when considering something like psilocybin?
1: Yeah, I guess I, I break it down into the psychological risks or, or mm-hmm. side effects, and then the physical ones mm-hmm. talking about, and we, could, we should be clear, if we're talking about LSD and psilocybin, mm-hmm. uh, the physical risks are fairly minimal. Mm-hmm. So we're going to increase heart rate and blood pressure a bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the studies, people with unstable heart conditions are also excluded. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in the John Hopkins study, for instance, they're giving these Pretty high doses of psilocybin to people dying of cancer, so like different right. organisms in their body are you know near failure. Right. So relative to some other drugs we give, it's safe in that physical sense. Then there's the whole question of psychological risk. Mm-hmm. You'll hear a lot about bad trips and challenging mm-hmm. trips, mm-hmm. and you know to call them challenging, I think, is a little bit of a. In some cases, that's per- totally appropriate, but for mm-hmm. anybody who's had a bad trip, you know. Y- you'll know it's terrifying. It's, it's mm-hmm. it not constructive to be in mm-hmm. full mental mode and not have a place to understand that. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a very real risk is mm-hmm. kind of disorientation and anxiety
2: mm-hmm. that can mm-hmm. come
1: from, uh, you know, a psilocybin experience that's not well prepared or not in a really safe setting or, you know, like the, the, yeah, uh, careful not to, to like, you know, advise anything, but, but, um, there are, are envi- there's set and setting is so crucial to yeah. you know, uh, inclining the experience toward a, a good or a bad experience.
0: And and note on that, from what I've read, a lot of the trials uh, for a specific psychedelic assisted therapy have been super controlled, like down to the temperature of the room, the color scheme of the room, the furniture in the room, right? So in, in kind of thinking about those settings, again, very important, making sure that it's, it's very safe for the person that's um, uh, undergoing psychedelics, right?
1: Exactly. So we take this idea of setting, setting super seriously
0: mm-hmm.
1: because we know that psychedelics are, ve- the effects are very context dependent. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, mm-hmm. you, you take Lexapro in your, in your room or mm-hmm. at a wave or mm-hmm. in your mom's basement, Lexapro mm-hmm. will affect you the same or Tylenol or.
2: Right, right, you
1: know, right. Ordon or something. Psychedelics, very different experience. You know, in, in, in a rave, you know, at a festival with people you don't know versus in a, you know, maybe a quiet forest that's peaceful with a trusted trusted friend and a backpack of snacks and a blanket, whatever it may be. Really different kinds of experience. So, yeah, in, in all of the trials, it's, it's a lot of careful preparation, knowing what the experience might be like, right. having comfortable room uh, settings, couch, eye shades, music. Um, And kind of having a plan about how to integrate and deal with intense emotions that come up or challenging Mm -hmm. experiences. Mm -hmm.
0: And so this is a sports and performance space. Um, So I I would like to definitely make sure we we cover that as well uh, here at the end of our interview. Um, Both of us, sounds like anecdotally, have heard that it can be potentially helpful or athletes may be using specifically psilocybin um, for performance how can we hypothesize what might be some of the benefits we think, um, for use of, of psychedelics in a athletic form of space?
1: Yeah. I should say that everything I'm about to say is total speculation. So sure. yeah. good, uh, studies, it would be interesting studies to do, you know, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. with, uh, uh, athletes to, you know, you, uh, yeah, it won't happen ethically. We can't do it. It doesn't make sense, but we should also specify, I think high dose psychedelic use, Versus mm-hmm. microdosing, which mm-hmm. we can talk about a bit, right? Right. I don't think anybody is like taking high doses of of LSD and then and then going to the to the soccer game or or playing. And there right. are these fun historical stories of like this, you know, baseball players, a pitcher. I think it's Doc Ellis He like takes LSD, forgets he has a baseball game, and uh-huh. then it pitches a no hitter or something.
0: Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But but specifically, yes, microdosing is is uh, more what I was referring to. Yeah,
1: totally. So. Just to d- define it, microdosing psychedelics is using a anywhere from about, uh, let's just say an eighth to one-fifteenth of mm-hmm. a normal dose. Mm-hmm. So LSD, let's say the, a, an average macro dose is between 100 and 200 micrograms. Mm-hmm. A microdose might look like anywhere from five to 20 micrograms.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some
1: people will tell you that it's sub perceptual some people will say that they take it and they, they couldn't even tell you they were on it it's totally below uh, awareness and they go about their day with these um ho- hoping for like very under the hood effects
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: other people will tell you um that they do feel something it's subtle it's not so disturbing but it makes them a little bit more open-minded makes mm-hmm. them a little bit more clear some people in silicon valley use it almost like as a, as a kind of like focus aid, it makes them, you know, work more efficiently. You'll hear, mm-hmm. you'll hear different reports of, of the microdose experience. So there's some mm-hmm. variation there. Mm-hmm. Anecdotally I have heard of some people talking about using one of these very low uh, microdoses and mm-hmm. then you know, continuing on to an activity. They, they like a sport that they do and mm-hmm. finding that they feel a little bit more clear or more sharp um, mm-hmm. to my knowledge. I think you you did point out one study I think it had emailed um looking at this um, but all the data about this is is observational right there's, there's studies those really don't want to suggest that it it makes you a better you know football player or soccer player or anything like that Anecdotally, it go to scattered reports of changes in how people can focus um, yeah we I guess we can one um. Again, complete speculation here. Sure, yeah. But um, taking this idea of uh, LSD in the brain, say, or psilocybin,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and uh, you know, opening new uh, channels of communication between brain areas, mm-hmm. uh, diminishing a little bit the you know rumination in this uh, sort of default mode network stuff. But mm-hmm. imagine that maybe in some sports performance, uh, a lot of thought could could m- maybe get in the way. like
0: mm. maybe, about- maybe a lot of like performance anxiety, for example, or uh, doubt about one's abilities.
1: Right. And it could be that a, a microdose of LSD just tilts the brain in, in some way that allows it to dial into the activity or the mm-hmm. sensations in their body. Mm-hmm. Maybe pushing to the side a little bit some of this... Some, some of the potential rumination or, or thought or concern mm. or self doubt that might get in the way. Now I should say it's not something I've tried and it very mm-hmm. easily could swing the other direction.
0: Certainly. Right. Right. You know, if right. You wanna,
1: if, you want, if you want a good performance anxiety drug, take propranolol, you know, <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> right. Don't, right. Don't take LSD. Right. 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 I mean, game day at least, you know, so really could go both ways. It could increase anxiety, but it might also have the effect we just talked about.
0: Right, right. And it sounds like physically, we'd also want to be cognizant of, again, heart rate, blood pressure. Um, You don't want someone to be all of a sudden hypotensive or even hypertensive um, and run into issues um, or have differences in arrhythmias that can cause problems. So sounds like we would not advise, again, folks to be doing this um, without doctor supervision.
1: Agreed. And I should say, maybe I was just, you know, using a bunch of words and Maybe the way to summarize anecdotally what people talk about is feeling more present. Yeah, and so you that, might, makes, that would
0: make a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: You might speculate that feeling more present in contact with your body and sensations and whatever could lead to changes in performance or improvement in performance. Whether that's yes, yeah, sports or work or social relationships, um, but again, it, it really could go e- either direction.
0: Yeah, well, um, I feel like we could talk for hours, uh, Johnny. But I'm, I'm so happy to have shared this conversation with you. I think that there is definitely more work and more research to be done, um, especially in this performance space. Um, and and maybe maybe we'll see Dr. Glick's name on some papers. We'll we'll, we'll have to see. Um, but but thank you so much for your time. Um, I can assure people will want to know where they can follow your work or, or learn more about these topics. What would you recommend as far as uh, resources to follow you and the topic in general of, of psychedelics and performance?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some ways you can't avoid it. It's all over the media. There's so much hype. Uh, we tried at Stanford, we put together our Stanford Psychedelic Science Group. Mm-hmm. We have a mm-hmm. website. It's pretty easy to find, just Stanford Psychedelic and Google. And we try mm-hmm. to curate a lot of educational resources, studies mm-hmm. and things to read Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to be found there. That's, that's um, good information. Um, we also on there, you can find, you know, we host talks by speakers every so often okay. that are open to the public and, and free. Okay. And yeah, I'd say those are good, good places to start. And I'll leave it to you Roy, to uh, to bring in that sports, sports psychiatry and performance uh, aspect to it. Maybe a collaboration in the future.
0: Okay. Well, definitely looking forward to it. But um, thank you again, uh, Dr. Johnny Glick for your time and uh, for joining us, man. It was, it was a pleasure.
1: Thanks, Ray. Appreciate
0: it. All right.
1: Thank you so much for watching or listening to our content today. Please like and subscribe to our YouTube and podcast channels and share this episode with your friends and colleagues. Also follow us at SportsPsychISSP on Twitter and
0: Instagram, or you can find us on Facebook as The international society for sports psychiatry are you a medical student psychiatry resident
2: fellow
1: in a psychiatry subspecialty fellowship program or a psychiatrist who has completed a psychiatry residency program interested in learning more about sports psychiatry join us and become a member of the issp we have a free open source certificate of additional training in sports psychiatry program for more information about our certification program membership, or other inquiries, go to our website at sportspsychiatry.org.